Hello and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. This is episode 11 and today we're asking the question, how do I deal with doubts? We're also going to be reading Genesis chapter 12, Nehemiah chapter 1, Matthew 11, and Acts 11 together. I do want to encourage you to check out our website, which is BibleReadingPodcast.com. I make a post for every one of our episodes, so that's 11 posts so far this year, and there's lots of information there, sort of a transcript of the show, so anything you might be looking for is going to be found there. I would encourage you, if you would be so kind, to share that website with your friends and to do things like leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify or wherever you can leave a review, share this on social media. Our goal is to encourage people in daily Bible reading. And so uh, we want to get this out as, as far as possible. We don't want to necessarily have people go back to episode one and then try to catch up and get overwhelmed and quit. We want you to do daily Bible reading. So that means if you're starting now in the middle of January, great. If you find this podcast in August, that's great. Just start in August and that's what we'll do. So let's celebrate. We've made it through 10 episodes and we finished our first book together, the book of Ezra. That's great. Uh, We're going to start reading today in Matthew chapter 11 because something very significant And really a little bit unsettling happens in that passage. The focus there is on John the Baptist at the beginning, who was a cousin of Jesus. And at this time, he's risen to incredible prominence in Israel as a revival preacher. God had given John a incredible ministry. Everybody was knew who he was, was talking to him. And uh, all the important people in the country and all the non-important people in the country were going out in the desert to hear him speak and be challenged by him. He was a man of uncompromising righteousness and uh, a mighty lover of God, an incredible guy. God used him to prepare his country for the public ministry of his cousin, Jesus. Whether he was asked about it or not, we don't know. But at some point, sort of at the height of his ministry, John proclaimed his view, which is solidly grounded in scripture, obviously, that Herod the Tetrarch, the president of Israel, essentially at the time, that he could not have intimate relations with his brother Philip's wife. And of course, this infuriated Herod, and Herod wanted to kill John, but he didn't really have the courage to do that, so he just threw John in jail and sort of forgot about him. And by the time uh, we get to the passage today, John is in jail kind of rotting away. He's gone from having this incredibly prominent ministry. He's gone from baptizing Jesus, the Son of God, and now he's sitting in jail and and struggling with what's going on. So let's go ahead and read Matthew 11 and find out kind of what happens. This is Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, Christian Standard Bible. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. 
and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? Well, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and you say, He has a demon! The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Before we get back to John the Baptist in doubts, one thing that I think will be helpful for us to do is a very brief summary of every book that we finish. So here's a brief summary of Ezra. He was a scribe, a priest, and zealous expert in the law. The time period covered by the book is right around 450 years before the birth of Jesus, and it records the return of the Jewish people to Jerusalem after a 70-year exile in the Babylonian era. Chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra are about the return of a small, sort of an advanced group of Jewish people. They're sent there to secure Jerusalem and prepare for the building of the temple. Unfortunately, 
the enemies of Jerusalem, sort of neighbors living around and what have you, they mount a campaign to prevent the rebirth of that city. And there's quite a bit of back and forth between them, the advanced Jewish preparation team, and the Persian governments of Darius and Artaxerxes. Ultimately, the Persian government sides with the Jewish people and orders the work on the temple and the walls to continue and also orders various ways for that work to be funded. Interestingly enough, Ezra is actually not one of the advanced scouts. He's not in most of the book. He doesn't even make an appearance in his own book until chapter 7, and when he is introduced to us by way of a very brief genealogy. Ezra leads a team returning to Jerusalem after the advance team with literally thousands and thousands of pounds of treasure, gold and silver, etc., and no military guard. And Ezra praises God upon his safe arrival because he trusted God to get him there more than he trusted an armed guard. Ezra later discovers that many of the people of God have disobeyed his commands and married foreign wives, a situation that Ezra resolves by calling for the sending away of all of these foreign wives. And that is Ezra, an interesting guy with a passion for God and great faith who solves a thorny problem in quite a controversial way. Back to Matthew 11, Doubt and John the Baptist. John is in jail in Matthew 11 and apparently feels like he misunderstood God's plan or that something has gone wrong. So he sends his followers to ask Jesus essentially what's up. Are you the guy? Are you really the Messiah? John is going through what appears to be a significant crisis of faith. And honestly, who can blame him? He's in a dank and dark dungeon, and basically he's just awaiting his execution, which sadly will come pretty soon, and in such a capricious way. It's worthy to remember here that Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest human being ever born in history or at least in a tie for first place with that title, according to Luke 7.28, where Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And here we see the greatest man ever struck by a massive wave of doubt, which brings us to a question that lots of Christians have but rarely voice. And that question is this, am I the only Christian that wrestles with doubt? And the answer is, of course you aren't. Here's John the Baptist conceived in a miraculous way, like genuinely miraculous, the one who heard God's voice and he saw the heavenly dove descending on Jesus at his baptism. The greatest human ever. This guy has seen God do so many things and yet here he is struggling with doubt. And you know what? I'm a pastor and sometimes I do too. And if you are being honest, I'll bet you get hit by waves of doubt as well. So, how do we handle them? Let's turn to one of my writing heroes, C.S. Lewis. And and I'll start out with a letter he wrote. Uh, It was written in 1963, just actually, I think about a month before he died. Um, So, the the letter is written to a Catholic friend of his, uh, Madaliva. I'm probably mispronouncing her name, but this is what he says. Thank you for your most kind letter. I will direct Fabers to send you a copy of my little book, but it may shock your pupils. It is called A Grief Observed. From day to day in all its rawness and sinful reactions and follies. It ends with faith, but raises all the blackest doubts in root. 
Since my wife's death, I've been very ill myself, and last July I was, while unconscious, given extreme unction. It would have been such an easy death that one almost regrets having had the door shut in one's face, but in his will is our peace. I am now retired from my work and live as an invalid, but am quite contented and cheerful. I'm afraid laziness has more to do with this than sanctity. All blessings. Yours most sincerely, C.S. Lewis. I love that letter. And I love Lewis because he was a man of genuine candor. Uh, Lewis wrote that letter in 1963, October. He would die a month later. Interestingly enough, he died on the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated and that British author Aldous Huxley died. So the world lost three great men that day. And in the letter, he talks about his book called A Grief Observed. It's a book that is about Lewis's battle with doubt and faith that came when he was watching his beloved wife, Helen Joy Grisham, dying of cancer. Lewis, as I mentioned, is one of my heroes. Probably the biggest reason that he's one of my heroes is because he was not a hollow Christian brimming with empty positivisms and fake smiles and uh, positive slogans and repacked religion. The kind of guy with... uh the teeth that gleam white and you see them on TV and they look perfect in a massive auditorium and all they say is positivities. Not a fan of that. Lewis was a man of full and deep thought about the things of God and Jesus. His book is a stunning display of that reality and it deals with grief and doubt on a level that's so real and visceral that you, you just can't read it and think that the author was anything less than a genuine person. Now, in the introduction to that book, uh, Lewis's wife's son, so Lewis's stepson, uh, the one, the, the, the son of the, the lady who died, he introduces the books this way. He says, C.S. Lewis, the writer of so much that is so clear and so right, the thinker whose acuity of mind and clarity of expression enable, uh, enabled us all to understand so much, this strong and determined Christian, he too fell headlong into the vortex of whirling thoughts and feelings and dizzily groped for support and guidance deep in the dark chasm of grief. How I wish that he had been blessed with just such a book as this. If we find no comfort in the world around us and no solace when we cry to God, if it does nothing else for us, at least this book will help us to face our grief and to misunderstand things a little less completely. So here's the thing. If doubt can grip a guy like C.S. Lewis, who has probably written the most famous best-selling, had probably written the most famous best-selling apologetics book years prior to this situation in this book, if doubt can grip sort of a prince of faith like that, and if doubt can grip John the Baptist, the greatest person ever born, according to Jesus, then you can be sure that it will grip normal people like you and me. John the Baptist, in his great moment of despair, looked to Jesus for answers. And honestly, you and I can do no better. That's good advice for us to do what John the Baptist did, to go to Jesus and say, hey, what's going on? 
We have no records of his longings, of his griefs and lamentations as he waited death, but we actually do have the words of Lewis as he went through the valley of the shadow of death watching his wife die. And I want to read some of those words here. Maybe this will be an encouragement to you. Maybe you've lost somebody. Maybe you've had somebody dear to you die and the grief is still close and you fight doubt. Well, brother or sister, you're not alone. You're not alone. And so I would recommend that book to you. First of all, A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. But let me just read a couple of sections. Then we're going to finish our Bible reading for the day. Feelings and feelings and feelings. Let me try thinking instead, says Lewis. From the rational point of view, what new factor has joy's death introduced into the problem of the universe what grounds has it given me for doubting all that i believe i already knew that these things and worse happened every day i would have said that i'd taken them into account i had been warned i'd even warned myself not to reckon on worldly happiness We were even promised sufferings in the Bible. They were part of the program. We were even told by Jesus, blessed are they that mourn. And I accepted it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others. And it's different when it happens in reality, not in imagination. Yes, but should it, for a sane man, make quite such a difference as this? No. And it wouldn't for a man whose faith had been real faith and whose concern for other people's sorrows had been real concern. The case is too plain. If my house has collapsed at one blow, that is because it was a house of cards. The faith which took these things into account was not fully faith but imagination. The taking them into account was not real sympathy. If I had really cared, as I thought I did, about the sorrows of the world, I should not have been perhaps so overwhelmed when my own sorrow came. It has been an imaginary faith playing with innocuous counters labeled illness, pain, death, and loneliness. I thought I trusted the rope until it mattered to me whether or not it would bear me. Now it matters, and I find that I didn't. You see the doubt in there? I think Lewis might be perhaps being too hard on himself, but you feel that rawness of of what he's saying. Well, he continues a few pages later. He says, Bridge players tell me that there must be some money on the game or else people won't take it very seriously. Apparently, it's like that. You're a bid for God or for no God, for a good God or for a cosmic sadist, for eternal life or non-entity, will not be serious if nothing much is staked on it. And you will never discover how serious it was until the stakes are raised horribly high, until you find that you are playing not for counters or for sixpences, but for every penny you have in the world. Nothing less will shake a man, or at any rate a man like me, out of his merely verbal thinking and his merely notional beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. Only torture will bring out the truth. Only under torture does he discover it himself, and I must surely admit, joy would have forced me to admit in a few passes that if my house was a house of cards, the sooner it was knocked down the better." and only suffering can do it. The terrible thing is that a perfectly good God is in this matter hardly less formidable than a God who would be a cosmic sadist, a lover of pain. The more we believe, 
that God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe that there is any use in begging for tenderness. A cruel man might be bribed, might grow tired of his cruel sport, might have a temporary fit of mercy as alcoholics have a temporary fit of sobriety. But suppose that what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your beggings, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. But is it credible that such extremities of torture should be necessary for us? Well, take your choice. The tortures happen whether we like it or not. If they are unnecessary, then there is no God or just a bad God. If there is a good God, then these tortures are necessary. For no even moderately good being could possibly inflict or permit them if they weren't. Now those are deep waters, my friend. And I do commend that book to you. In that book, you will hear or read Lewis wrestling with God and his deepest thoughts as he watched his wife die slowly. And it's gut-wrenching. But it is such a wonderful thing to see such a thing unfold and see how Lewis comes out the other side with a faith that's no longer like a house of cards, but a concreted thing, a built-up thing. It's a wonder to read. And my friends, if you struggle with doubts, you are not alone. And as I said, I can tell you to do what John the Baptist did. Go to Jesus. Sometimes the fact of the matter is when tragedy strikes, all we can do is respond essentially like Job did in Job chapter 1, verse 20. The Bible says Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head after a terrible calamity happened to him. He fell down to the ground and worshiped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. My friends, we know. We know suffering is going to come. We know grief is going to come. We know inconvenience is going to come. When it does, don't be surprised. I usually am. But turn to the Lord and trust in his goodness even when the pain doesn't lift. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the side of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country west east of Bethel and pitched his tent. 
with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there, and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham journeyed by stages to the Negev. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. They will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female servants or slaves, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh sent from Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. That is a sticky situation. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. During the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, The remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night, for your servants, the Israelites, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands and statutes and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but... But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Acts chapter 11. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, 
You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began to explain to them step by step. I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts and the reptiles and the birds of the sky. I also heard a verse telling me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. No, Lord, I said, for nothing impure or ritually unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time. What God has made clean, you must not call impure. Now, this happened three times, and everything was drawn up again into the heaven. At that very moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. He reported to us how he had seen the angels standing in his house and saying, "'Send to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also called Peter.' He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them, just as on us at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this... They became silent, and then they glorified God, saying, So then, God has given repentance, resulting in life even to the Gentiles. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But... There were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarshish to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Praise God. That was the word of the Lord. I hope it was encouraging and refreshing to you. And we will be back tomorrow for day number 12. Hope you can join us then. And until then, I'll just sign off with this. Godspeed to you.